You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Every year for the major Christian holidays like Christmas and Easter, it's always my goal to try and preach a message um, that's in the book, whatever book it is that we happen to be preaching through. I try and, and plan things kind of around those holidays and so that we're in a text where it'd be really easy to address the theme of the season without leaving the book that we're in. Now, sometimes that has worked out really well. Sometimes it's very easy to do that. Other times it's very difficult to do that. Sometimes it's totally impossible to do that. And today is one of those days when it's totally impossible to do that. So we're going to be looking at a passage of Scripture that is outside of what we have been looking at in the Gospel of John. But we are not going to be leaving the themes that we have been talking about for the last five months now, since the beginning of August. We've been looking at John chapter 1, and we have seen the themes that are there and the truths that are there are very Christmassy. That is to say that we have addressed issues like the Word becoming flesh, the eternal Word of God leaving his throne and his position of exalted glory, his position as God in heaven and coming here to on earth to dwell with us. We have looked at the Word becoming flesh, and we've been very careful to describe what we, what we mean when we say that God became a man. We mean not that he changed from God into man, nor that uh, he stopped being God and changed and became a man, but we mean rather that he who was the Word, the eternal Word, God, took upon himself human flesh, took upon himself a human nature so that he was 100% God and 100% man. So we have in the person of Christ two natures in one person. We've looked at that in the Gospel of John, chapter 1. And we've looked at why he came. He came to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And we have looked and had ample opportunity to discuss the messianic expectations that were rampant and at fever pitch during the days when Jesus came that they were expecting a political deliverer, somebody to set them free from the bondage to Rome, to set up the kingdom of David, to establish the throne in Israel and restore the Davidic kingdom right there and to rule and reign in a kingdom of peace and prosperity forevermore that would never end. That's what they were expecting. And we've looked at Nathaniel's confession at the end of John chapter 1 where Nathaniel says, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And last week, I didn't develop that theme, King of Israel, because I knew and intended on not doing that the way I normally would, because I knew that today we would be developing that in much greater detail as we look at He who is both the Savior and the King of Israel. Oftentimes at Christmas time we think of Jesus coming in His meek and mild, born of a virgin, the baby in the manger, uh, soft and gentle, quiet night, no crying, the stars and the shepherds, and everything's cool, calm and collected and all of that. And, and we can focus on that sometimes to the uh, detriment of reminding ourselves or remembering that he who was born a babe in a manger is also the king of kings and the lord of lords and he will rule and he will reign just as the old testament promised that he would and so today we're going to look at that christ has theologians speak of the lord jesus christ as having three offices prophet priest and king have you heard of that prophet priest and king a prophet spoke for god a priest interceded with god and a king ruled in the place of god a prophet spoke for God, a priest interceded with God between God and men, and a king ruled in God's stead. Now, not all of the kings in the Old Testament 
era ruled the way that God would rule. They were all failures. Even David was a failure to rule as God would rule. But that was the design or the intention of a king. That was the role of a king, to rule in the place of God. Jesus Christ is the ultimate prophet because he was God's word incarnate. He spoke for God. The words that he spoke were life. They were true. Every word he uttered was true. He spoke as God's spokesman because he was God in human flesh. And he could speak on behalf of the Father and vouchsafe things on behalf of the Father because he was the perfect prophet. He was also the perfect priest because he offered not the bull, the blood of bulls and goats as other priests did and as the high priest did, and they had to offer it continually in the temple over and over again, first offering sacrifices for their own sins and then for the sins of the people. But he entered the Holy of Holies once for all and offered not the blood of bulls and goats but his own blood, and now he forever lives to make intercession for those who are his, and he saves to the uttermost all those that come to him by faith. So he is the perfect priest. That's the whole argument of the book of Hebrews, by the way, or most of the argument of the book of Hebrews. And he's also a perfect king. And the Jews in the Old Testament had certain messianic expectations where they envisioned the Messiah coming as a king, but they neglected or failed to understand all of the implications of his role as prophet and as priest. And we've talked about the messianic expectation. The Jews, at the time of Jesus, were expecting the Messiah to be born of a royal family, in a royal line, in a royal place, to be a son of David, to be recognizable from the moment of his birth, to then be given the throne of his father David and to rule over the reestablished Davidic line, the Davidic kingdom, here in a literal kingdom on a literal earth from Jerusalem and to exercise that rule over the entire world to destroy all Gentile powers, all Gentile kingdoms, and to establish his own rule and to reign and rule with a rod of iron and to destroy injustice and to establish a kingdom which would be characterized by peace and justice and truth and righteousness, and you read about that kingdom in the Old Testament, you say, oh, don't I want that. Just to have somebody rule with truth and righteousness and justice and equity, right? That was what the Messiah was going to do. Why did the Jews expect that? Because that is exactly what the Old Testament prophets predicted and promised would happen. But that was not all that the Old Testament prophets predicted and promised would happen. Because you see, right in front of them, in plain black and white, were all of the prophecies that had to do with His first coming. All of the prophecies that had to do with the Messiah's suffering and His death at the hands of sinners. And the fact that He would suffer and atone for sins, that He would die, that He would be buried, that He would rise again, that He would be born, that He would suffer and die. All of that was in the Old Testament. So how is it that the Jews misunderstood that? How is it that they missed the Messiah when He came? Why is it that they didn't comprehend that the Messiah would both rule and reign and he would suffer and die. You know why it is? Well, I think it has to do partially with judicial blindness and a judicial hardening that God was doing with the nation of Israel at that time to accomplish his purposes. There's a couple of the things that play into it. First, in the Old Testament, you have to keep in mind that the idea of the church was a complete mystery. Ephesians 2 and Ephesians 3. The whole idea that there would be a time between the Messiah's first coming and the second coming was a mystery to them. They didn't understand the concept of two comings. To them, they would read the prophecies, and the prophets, in typical Old Testament prophet fashion, oftentimes would combine elements of the first coming with the second coming, sometimes in the same sentence together, because all they saw was the work of the Messiah. They didn't understand that this was going to happen in two comings and that they would be separated by centuries, by 2,000 years now. They didn't understand that mystery of that period between the two comings known as the church age. To them, it was a mystery. It wasn't revealed. The old prophets didn't get that. They didn't see it. 
But second, here's what the Jews of Jesus' day did. They saw the prophecies of a suffering, dying Messiah and the prophecies of a ruling, reigning Messiah. And they said, how can these two things go together? How can the Messiah come and suffer and die and yet the Messiah come and rule and reign? We don't understand how those could possibly go together. And so in order to sort of keep them straight in their mind or at least mesh those two together, what the Jews of Jesus' day was they said, we want a ruling, reigning Messiah with the kingdom and all that it entails. So they would look at the prophecies of the kingdom and they took all of them literally, just as they're written, at face value. He's going to come, he's going to rule, he's going to reign, Davidic kingdom, Davidic line, son of David, all of that literally. But then they would look at the prophecies of the first coming, the suffering and the death, and here's what they did. They said, we can't understand how a Messiah could come and suffer and die. So those predictions must be spiritual. They must be symbolic in some way of some greater spiritual truth. So they would read Isaiah 53 and do what Jews do today and say, the Isaiah 53, the suffering of the servant of God, well, that refers to the nation of Israel. That's a picture of the nation of Israel, not the Messiah. Or they would say, maybe that symbolized the agony of the Messiah in setting up his kingdom. Or the agony or the struggle of the Messiah against evil in his kingdom. So they took it symbolically. They spiritualized it or they allegorized it and they didn't take it in its literal straightforward fashion. Today, amongst Christians, there are Christians who do the exact same thing in opposite, in reverse. They look at the passages that deal with the suffering servant, the suffering and dying Messiah, and they say, we understand all of that to be literal. But when it comes to the kingdom, oh no, it's a spiritual throne in heaven where He reigns spiritually over the hearts of men. There is no future for Israel. There is no literal kingdom. There is no literal reign in Jerusalem over the Davidic line. And they make the same mistake that the Jews of Jesus has made but they do it with the second coming instead of the first coming. Now, we don't want to do that. I think we need to take the Old Testament prophets regarding the first coming in the same way that we take the prophets, prophecies regarding his second coming, and that is literally, just as they were given at face value in the plain sense of the passage that's given. So what we want to look to today is to look at a passage where both of these comings are spoken of in the same passage and see how all of this fits together and get the big picture of what the Christ child came to do. So turn in your Bibles to the book of Isaiah chapter 9. The book of Isaiah chapter 9. We're going to look at verse 6 and verse 7. Probably a familiar passage to you. I would bet that verse 6 is probably far more familiar than verse 7 simply because verse 6 and this passage actually is probably one of the most used and at the same time most neglected passages in all the Bible. Now why would I say that? How can it be both the most used and the most neglected? The most used because probably half of the stuff that you get in the mail that has to do with Christmas, Christmas cards and Christmas wishes, has verse chapter 9, verse 6 attached to it. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. The most One of the most used Christmas passages in all the Bible. But one of the most neglected because very seldom does anybody quote verse 7. Look what verse 7 says. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace and on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So we love to quote verse 6 because it deals with his first coming and rightly so. But at the same time, we neglect verse 7 which says, hey, there is a coming kingdom and he's going to establish it and he's going to set it up and he's going to rule over the house of David 
And He is going to exercise His government and there will be no end to it. God Himself is going to accomplish this. So we're going to look at verse 6 and verse 7. Now listen, chapter 9, and you know that I have to do this, chapter 9 doesn't come just in its little isolated context. You can't just pull those verses out of there without paying attention to what's all around them. So what I want to do is I want to give you a bird's eye view of the first eight chapters so you could read verses 6 and 7 of chapter 9 with the ears of a Jew. So you could hear what it would mean to you. So flip back to Isaiah chapter 1. And no, this is not going to take that long because I know you're thinking to yourself, this is going to take till Christmas before we get done with this. No, it's not. I just want to give you an overview of, of the whole context so you understand why verse 6 and 7 of chapter 9 was such good news to a Jew. Chapter 1. Isaiah was written... Um, by the way, I'm not reading right now, so you can look up here. Isaiah was written prior to the Babylonian captivity at the end of basically the nation of Israel. The kingdom had long since been divided, and by the time Isaiah comes along, the, the whole nation had slid into spiritual apostasy. Wickedness, iniquity, immorality, injustice, unrighteousness was at fever pitch. It was unbelievable. They had apostatized to a point that is almost beyond our imagination. And you read about it through the book of Isaiah. So now, at the time of Isaiah, when he's writing... All of the memory of David's kingdom, just a distant memory. It's all fog. It's all mist. Hundreds of years prior was the glory and the grandeur and the marvel of that Davidic kingdom. Hundreds of years prior was the, the promise to David about setting up and establishing his line and his kingdom. All of that was a distant memory. And the nation had deteriorated to the point where they were at the rock bottom of apostasy. Unimaginable apostasy. All right, Isaiah chapter 1. Look at verse 3. An ox knows its owner and a donkey its master, master's manger. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. A sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. They have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from Him. Where will you be stricken again as you continue in your rebellion? The whole head is sick and the whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is nothing sound in it. He's describing the nation of Israel. Only bruises, welts, and raw wounds, not pressed out or bandaged, nor softened with oil. Your land is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Your fields, strangers are devouring them in your presence. It's a desolation is overthrown by strangers. The daughter of Zion is left like a shelter in the vineyard, like a watchman's hut in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. Unless the Lord of hosts had left us a few survivors, we would be like Sodom and we would be like Gomorrah. What an insult. But that was the spiritual condition of the nation of Israel. Verse 10, hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Wow, can you imagine being a Jew and be called the rulers of Sodom? Right? Give ear to the instruction of your God, you people of Gomorrah. And he's not talking to literal Sodom and Gomorrah. He's addressing the nation. You are as bad as Sodom and Gomorrah. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I've had enough of your burnt offering of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Increase is an abomin incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of the assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They become a burden to me. I'm weary of you bear of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I'll hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. And he calls on them to repent. Verse 16. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. Do what you ought to be doing, is the idea. 
But they didn't, and so God says there's going to be judgment. Verse 18, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. If you consent and obey, you will eat the best of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. Truly the mouth of the Lord has spoken. How the faithful city has become a harlot. She who is full of injustice. Righteousness once lodged in her and now murderers. Your silvers become dross. Your drink diluted with water. Your rulers are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and chases after rewards. They do not defend the orphan, nor does the widow's plea come before them. Boy, that's just ruthless, isn't it? And it goes on like that for the full eight chapters all the way up to chapter 9. Now, once in a while, like in chapter 2, chapter 7, verse 4, a virgin will conceive and bear a child. And you'll name him Emmanuel because he will be God with us. Um, that's chapter 7, verse 14, the prophecy about the virgin. Chapter 2 has to deal with the, the kingdom that was coming. But for the bulk of the first eight chapters, it's all judgment. You have done this. This is your apostasy. You are wicked. You have turned your back on the Lord, and God is going to judge you. Oh, man, he is going to judge you, and that judgment is going to be judgment. It is severe. You people are in for a thumping. I am going to whoop you. I am going to drive you back to me. I am going to wipe you out, was the promise. Now go over to chapter 8. Look how chapter 8 ends, verse 21. They will pass through the land hard-pressed and famished. It will turn out that when they are hungry, they will be enraged and curse their king and their God as they face upward. Then they will look to the earth and behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be driven away into darkness. And you get to the end of chapter 8, and if you're a Jew and you're thinking of David's line and David's covenant and all the Old Testament covenants, and you've lived with that hope of a kingdom for centuries, and then you've read the first eight chapters of Isaiah, and you say, but our nation has devolved into a state of apostasy. We have abandoned the Lord, and the Lord is going to thump us. It is going to be darkness. It is going to be distress. You as a Jew would be asking yourself, is God going to fulfill His promises to us as a nation? Will God do what He has promised that He would do regarding David's throne and David's line and the kingdom? Or does this judgment mean that God is going to cast us off? And where's the answer? Chapter 9. Now that you got that in your mind, read chapter, read verse, uh, chapter 9, verse 1 and following from the ears of a Jew. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish in earlier times. He treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt, but later on he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they are, when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of the burden and the staff of their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor as at the battle of Midian. Every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire. How is this going to be accomplished? How are the oppressors are going, uh, going to be destroyed? How will our nation be delivered? Verse 6, a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace, and on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. But you say, how can we have that type of confidence in a promise like that? We are at the rock bottom. We are the worst we've ever been. How is this going to happen? What are we going to do? The end of verse 7, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Not you, O Israel. You are apostate. God is going to do this. God has vouchsafed His name to this. God will accomplish this. His zeal, His work, His energy. The Lord will do this. Not you. You're apostate. 
not going to be anything that any of you do. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. Now to our outline. We're going to look at two things. First of all, the king. We're going to see his coming and his character. And then second, in verse 7, we're going to look at the kingdom itself and the characteristics of that kingdom. So first, the king, his coming, and his character. Verse 6 says, Unto us a son is born, unto us a child is given. That describes the coming of the king. He's going to be born to us in a very natural way, just as natural children are born. I mean, look, everything regarding the birth of the Lord Jesus was absolutely natural, except for the virgin part, and except for the angels and the star and the wise men and all the stuff that associated that. But just looking at it from a human perspective, without the supernatural signs, it was a normal birth, a normal pregnancy. Mary was a normal individual. She wasn't sinless. She had a normal birth, uh, a pregnancy that lasted nine months. She went through all of the the pregnancy and the pains and the getting up at ten times a night to go to the bathroom. All of the stuff that's associated with a normal pregnancy, Mary went through. It was a normal delivery in every sense of the word. He was born into the normal course of human history. And if you go back and read the Old Testament, you see that he was going to be a son of Adam or a descendant from Adam through Eve, actually the seed of the woman. Uh, it would be a descendant of Adam through Noah, through Shem, through Abraham, Isaac, then Jacob, then Judah, then David. And the Lord narrowed it down in human history as to whom this person would be born from, a descendant of David. And that was Mary and Joseph, or Joseph was the legal descendant of, of Mary, so Jesus could have the legal right to the throne. Born into the normal course of human history as a natural man, just like any other person is born. Nothing spectacular about it. Nothing snazzy about it. Unattended and unwitnessed by the rest of the world. Just some shepherds were given a heads up as to what was going on, and that was it. But other than that, that night was just a normal, natural night that Jesus was born on. I guess provided it was a night. I guess we assume it was a night. It just occurred to me it might have been during broad daylight. I don't know. I'll have to go back and read that. But just unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, just a natural birth in every way. That is His coming. And look at the next phrase says, just in case you get to the point of saying, well, it's just going to be so natural, so normal, so so commonplace. Verse, the next phrase of verse 6 indicates that this is not going to be just any normal individual that's being born. The government will rest upon his shoulders. The government will rest upon his shoulders. Now, what does that mean? I have a little commentary, ancient Christian commentary on the Scriptures, and what they do is for every passage in the Bible, they go back and they collect sort of the writings of the early church fathers and they compile them all into one place. So if you want to know what do the early church fathers say on this, at least from a Catholic perspective, because it's uh, published by uh, Catholic editors and Catholic authors. So if I want to know what um, the early church fathers said that agrees with Catholic doctrine, I go to this, this commentary. So I pulled it out this last week and I was reading through the early church fathers on this and I was surprised to find this out. The early church fathers, at least a couple of them, the ones that are in this book, were all messed up about what that phrase, the government will rest upon his shoulders, means. They took it in what can only be a, what can only be an attempt to do away with the plain meaning of the text. They understood the government to rest upon his shoulders to be a reference to the cross. And I thought myself in the head. I said, "What? How do you get that from that? I don't get that from that." But Justin Martyr, who lived in the early second century, said this signifies the power of the cross, which at his crucifixion was placed on his shoulders. Ambrose, living in the fourth century, said he bowed his shoulder to labor, bowed himself to the cross to carry our sins. For that reason, the prophet says, the government is on his shoulders. This means above the passion of his body is the power of his divinity. It refers to that cross that towers above his body. The cross is the government. Because, you know, when you think of a symbol of the government, you instantly think of what? No, you don't think of the cross, do you? The cross doesn't symbolize the government of the world. Government is not uh, fulfilled in the cross. 
Caesarius of Arles in the 6th century said, Christ then had the government upon his shoulders when he carried his cross with wonderful humility. Not unfittingly does Christ's cross signify government because by it the devil is conquered and the whole world is recalled to the knowledge of the grace of Christ. What does it mean the government will rest upon his shoulders? It was a figure of speech. It had a literal meaning, actually, not anything symbolic or spiritual that we have to try and allegorize out of the, the phrase. When it says the government rests upon his shoulders, it was a figure of speech that simply meant all of the responsibility and authority and power and right of government will rest on him. That's what it means. And as Isaiah predicted it, that's exactly what Isaiah foresaw. In those days, the king had a royal robe, and he would put on his royal robe, and he would sit on his royal throne, and when he had his royal robe on, it was a symbol that the government rested upon his shoulders. It was a figure of speech that simply meant that. And if the king went away for a period of time and he delegated that authority to rule to somebody else, the robe stayed with him and the scepter and the throne and all of that, and the person who was ruling in the place of the king would don the royal robe and it would be said, the government rests upon his shoulders. All of the responsibility and the authority and the right to govern and rule rests upon this individual. That's all it means. The government, the right to rule, authority, responsibility in a kingdom rests upon this man's shoulders. And he will rule over the house of his father David forever and ever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And he will be called wonderful because he's a person of wonder and he's full of wonder and he did wonders. And everything about his nature and his character and his rule and his reign will be wonderful. He will be called counselor. And unlike other kings who needed to gather around them counselors from, from them to elicit input and wisdom and, and, uh, and all of the things to govern rightly, this king will need no counselors. He will have no cabinet. He will have no counselor of counselors because he is the wonderful counselor. He is the counselor of God. He has all wisdom, all knowledge, all understanding. He doesn't need anybody to give him instruction or understanding. He will be able to rule without input or counsel from anybody, and he will do so perfectly because he's God in human flesh. He'll be the wonderful. He'll be counselor. He'll be the El Gibor, mighty God. That is, he's God in human flesh. He's the mighty God. He is the father of eternity, which is what that phrase, the uh, eternal father, means. It doesn't mean that this one who would come was the father and not the son. It simply means that he is the father. He's closely related to the father, and he's the father of all eternity. And he's the prince of peace. He will rule in a kingdom of peace, and of his peace there will be no end. You're never going to have peace in the Middle East until the prince of peace rules in the Middle East. There's no agreement, there's no treaty that can be signed that's going to bring peace in the Middle East. Any peace treaty is going to be temporary, the Bible says. There will be no peace in the Middle East until the prince of peace rules. And when he rules, there will be peace, because he will rule with a rod of iron. It will be just, it will be righteous, it will be truthful, and it will be right in every way. And his reign, his rule, his kingdom will be peace, and he will be known as the prince, the king of peace. And you know, looking at verse 6, we could have taken six or seven messages to deal with all of that in verse 6, right? We kind of skimmed over it, but we got to get to verse 7 to do equal justice to verse 7 as well. He's going to be all of that. That is the coming king. That is the character of the king and who he is. Now look at the kingdom in verse 7. Now here's how I know that the government which rests upon his shoulders is not a reference to the cross. Because verse 7 tells me what Isaiah means in verse 6. Isaiah is, is not writing out of a convoluted sense of contradicting himself, and he's not using phrases in different ways in different verses. Isaiah means in verse 6 exactly what he's describing in verse 7. What does he say in verse 7? There will be no end to the increase of his government. What type of a government is Isaiah speaking of in verse 6 and verse 7? Is Isaiah describing a spiritual reign from a spiritual throne over the hearts of men all over the world just in a spiritual sense? Or is Isaiah describing by government the cross and all that it symbolizes? No. Look at verse 7. To, on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness 
from then on and forevermore. That's the government that Isaiah is describing. It will be on the throne of David, over the house of David, in a restored Davidic kingdom, in Jerusalem, from Zion, this king will reign. Over the house of David and on the throne of David. This is not the only place in the Old Testament where the throne of David or the rule over David's kingdom is mentioned. In Luke chapter 1, and we read it this morning for the Scripture reading, you remember what the angel said to Mary? Do you remember that? He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. Who's going to accomplish this? Is he going to usurp the throne? No, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. The Lord God is going to give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. It's amazing how often the birth of Christ is connected to his role as king. Micah chapter 5, verse 2 says, You, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be a ruler over Israel. Over the hearts of men in a spiritual sense? No. Over a spiritual throne? No. Just a ruler from heaven? No. A ruler in Israel. Over Israel. Second Samuel chapter 7, verse 16, Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne, God said to David, will be established forever. Psalm 89, 35, and 37. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David, that this line, his line, will continue forever, and his throne endure before me like the sun. It will be established forever like the moon and the faithful witness in the sky. Psalm 2, verses 6 through 12. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. Now, this is the Father speaking to God the Son. You will rule the nations with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. That's the, that's the beginning of the kingdom when He comes and He puts down all Gentile kingdoms and all Gentile rule and establishes one kingdom over all the earth and over all the nations. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord in fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you be destroyed. Psalm 110, which is the most quoted psalm in all of the New Testament. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. You will rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on the day of battle. Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6 says, The coming, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up to David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is right and just in the land. Zechariah 9, verse 9, Your king is coming, lowly, seated on a donkey. Daniel chapter 2, verse 44, In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end. Daniel 7, verse 14, He has given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Daniel 7, verse 27, Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be handed over to the saints, the people of the Most High, and His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and His rulers will worship and will obey Him. That's the kingdom that's coming, my friend. What kingdom is Isaiah describing? The same kingdom that Daniel described, that Jeremiah described, that the psalmist described? A kingdom that the Messiah would set up. He would come and he would rule and he would reign over the house of David on David's throne forever. And how will that begin? It will begin when the Messiah comes back and he puts an end to all Gentile rule. 
Every Gentile kingdom. Destroyed. Destroyed. And He will come back with His saints and we will reign with Him. And if there's any question as to how long that's going to be, Revelation chapter 20 gives it. Six times in six verses He says it. A thousand years. That's not a symbol for a long period of time. If the Spirit of God wanted to indicate a long period of time, the Spirit of God would have said a long period of time. It's a thousand years. That's how long it's going to be. It's going to be a thousand year reign, just as Scripture says. A thousand year reign of the Messiah here on earth over the entire world. Kingdom of peace, kingdom of prosperity, like the world has never seen or even imagined. Even imagined. Because Satan will be bound for that period of time. This is the king that was born. And this is the king that is also coming again. That is the scope of his kingdom. The scope of his kingdom on the throne of David and over his kingdom. Forever. Over all the world. Over all the nations. But now Isaiah also describes the security of that kingdom. Verse 7. He will establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. There's no revolt. There's no uh, revolt that will be able to put down the reign of the Messiah. We will never be threatened. It will be a secure kingdom. He will establish it. And he will uphold it. And it will do from that time forward and forevermore. It will be his kingdom. He will establish it. It will be an eternal kingdom. It will begin on this earth. And it will continue into the new heavens and the new earth. And it will begin when he establishes it here by putting down all Gentile rule. It will be an eternal kingdom. And it will go through the millennium, through the judgment, into the new heavens and the new earth, where he will continue to reign forever and ever and ever and ever on David's throne, over the house of David, over all for Israel. Over all the earth, the new heavens and the new earth, forever, forever, a just and righteous king. And a just and righteous kingdom. Well, that's the scope of it, and that's the security of it. Look at the surety of it. How could this possibly happen? How could this possibly happen? I mean, if you're reading this from a Jewish perspective in Isaiah's day, you'd be saying to yourself, well, hold on a second. Our whole nation has apostatized to the point where there's not hardly an obedient Jew among all of us. How is this going to take place? How is this ever going to be accomplished? The zeal of the Lord of hosts is going to accomplish this. In other words, friends, it's not your job and my job to usher in the kingdom by preaching the gospel, Christianizing the world, and winning converts. That's not our job. We don't accomplish this. This isn't a human endeavor. This isn't a human work. There's nothing that the church does or can do that will usher in the kingdom. So the whole idea of post-millennialism is out the door. We're not in the kingdom now. Satan is not bound now. This is not what the kingdom looks like. Aren't you thankful? I'm thankful. This is not what the kingdom looks like. The kingdom is not this. This is not the kingdom. And we don't usher in the second coming of the Lord. We don't usher in the full expression of the kingdom by Christianizing institutions, Christianizing governments, Christianizing nations by preaching the gospel. We don't do that. That's not our job. We don't accomplish this because it is the zeal of the Lord of hosts that will accomplish this. Further, we cannot abdicate it or uh, 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 give it up through disobedience. Israel did not give up its privileges or its covenants or its kingdom through its disobedience. How do I know that? When Isaiah wrote this promise to the nation of Israel, were they a righteous nation or an unrighteous nation? They were apostate beyond description. And yet the Lord says, I will still do this. This is what He promised to David. It was not a conditional covenant. So their disobedience does not abdicate it. It doesn't remove it. It doesn't sideline it. It doesn't put it off. It doesn't nullify the promises given to David and given to Abraham. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. This is God's work. So it is not up to Israel to obey in order to bring this to pass. It is not up to the church to evangelize in order to bring this to pass. So out the door goes amillennialism. So what are we left with? Is this a spiritual reign that Isaiah is describing over the hearts of men from heaven? 
No, it's not. It is not. All of the prophecies regarding the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ were fulfilled just as they were given, literally. All of the prophecies regarding His second coming will be fulfilled just as they were given, literally. There's no reason to jump ship in the middle of a sentence and say, well, we took all this literally, now we're going to take the rest of this symbolically and figuratively and allegorically and metaphorize it and make it spiritual to point to something else. No, 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 no. I don't think that that's doing justice to the Word of God or to the intention of the prophets or the prophecies or the coming kingdom. So what do we have to look forward to? Jesus Christ came the first time to do away with sin. That's why He came. To offer Himself as a sacrifice for sinners, for all those who will repent and turn from their sin and believe the gospel. He came to put away sin by sacrificing Himself, to deal with the sin issue. When He comes a second time, it's not going to be to atone for sin. It's not going to be to deal with sin at all. That has already been taken care of. When He comes a second time, listen, He is going to tread out the winepress of the wrath of Almighty God. And he is going to destroy all of his enemies and all those who rise up against him. And he will put an end to all Gentile wicked rule and governments. He will establish the long-promised, long-awaited rule and kingdom of David and sit on David's throne and he will rule just as the Old Testament prophets predicted. And we will experience, if we are saved, we will experience the blessing of that eternal kingdom here on earth and the lifting of the curse, and the binding of Satan, and all of the prosperity and the blessing that goes with it as we as saints reign with him in that kingdom of David on this earth. At the end of that period of time, that kingdom will be not done away with, but that kingdom will be uh, established on a new heavens, on a new earth, after all that is around us here burns up in an unquenchable fire and is destroyed, and God recreates a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells, in which nothing impure will ever enter. And that kingdom will continue into that new heavens and that new earth. That, my friends, is what Jesus Christ is coming to do. What did he do the first time? He came as a prophet and a priest the first time. Let us not think for one moment that he is not coming again as a king the second time. Because that is what the Old Testament prophets predicted. And that is what they promised. He is our prophet. He is our priest. And he is our coming king. And we will see him. And he will rule. And he will reign and it will be glorious beyond description. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are so thankful for the hope that we have in Christ. We look at all that is around us in terms of the suffering and the agony and the sin and the depravity and the wickedness and injustice and the apostasy. And sometimes we wonder if we're going to continue to go downhill or if you will ever step into human history and alter this course and change it. And we thank you that your word says you will. We thank You, Father, that the zeal of the Lord of hosts is going to accomplish this, is going to bring it to pass. We thank You for a Savior who has come to deal with sin and is coming again to put down all sin and to rule and to reign and to bring us with Him into that kingdom. What a glorious hope. What a glorious message. What a glorious Savior is Christ our King. We thank You for Him and we pray in His name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.